This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now we begin a special segment on colon cancer. And colorectal cancer is the third most commonly diagnosed cancer in Canada, the second leading cause of death from cancer in men, and the third leading cause of death from cancer in women in our country. And it's very treatable if caught early. And we're advised to screen for it after the age of 50, but we know that some screening has been disrupted because of the pandemic. And that makes this conversation especially timely. Let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And if you have questions, we have the very best people here to answer them. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Stephen Gallinger, a hepatobiliary pancreatic surgical oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center and Barry Stein, president of colorectal Cancer Canada. Thank you both so much for being with us. Hi. Hi. Good afternoon, dear. Hi. Uh, Dr. Gallinger, so uh, how disrupted would you say the normal course of things, screening, either the the home screening or or colonoscopies, have been because of the pandemic? Well, I think you said it well in your uh, introduction. It's it's been very disruptive, and I think the uh, the data will be coming out soon if there's already some data uh, you know there's a short the bottom line is there's been very a lot of difficulty accessing physicians especially family physicians by the general population and then those with symptoms uh, again that's not screening but those with symptoms uh, have had significant delays in their investigations and anecdotally many physicians such as myself and others, have noted uh, more advanced disease, uh, later disease than we think we saw before the pandemic. But I think probably the most important will be to gather the data and start uh, publishing it. And that's that's happening right now. So they're having significant uh, uh, delays and consequences uh, on screening for sure. I know it's just anecdotal, but uh, is there an average stage where you would normally discover it? And how much has that gone up by? Uh, I don't want to answer with numbers. You know, I, we, as uh, Barry and others will tell you, the purpose of screening is to pick up pre-malignant or pre-cancer polyps in most cases. So those are actually not even cancer. They're just pre-cancers. So I think we'll see that we're picking up uh, stage one and two cancers at a higher rate than we did before the pandemic, and those data will come out. I deal a lot with metastatic disease, which is more advanced, again, not related to screening, and we are seeing more advanced disease uh, than we used to see. So uh, the purpose of screening is to detect uh, precancerous polyps and to remove them. Uh, Barry, um, what have you been finding with the people you're in contact with? Uh, So first of all, thank you for having me uh, on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I have to say that um, we've seen a, a lot of unusual things happening um, first of all, uh, during the last year or two, we've had um, across the country um, where there are screening programs, with the exception of Quebec, which 
doesn't yet have a screening program, but we have seen interruptions in those screening programs, which has caused, um, uh, number one, a whole bunch of people who have missed their biannual uh, FIT screenings. And secondly, um, a lot of people who have gone beyond that, who have even had signs and symptoms, but have been afraid to come to the hospital um, for, you know, fear of catching the virus. Uh, and consequently, um, you know, their, their cancers are being diagnosed at a later stage. Um, as exactly as Dr. Gallinger pointed out, uh, screening programs are there to look at the average risk population between 50 and 74 who have no signs and symptoms. So you want to catch it before there's a cancer. And those screenings have been missed. And in the province of Ontario, uh, there's, there actually is a very large number throughout the province of about, uh, I think it's about 24% in the recent, recent report who are at least behind in their screenings. But more than that, um, as was pointed out already, we have seen anecdotally um, um, new cases who are being found at more advanced stages. In a recent meeting that I've had with um, a clinical trials group in oncology in Quebec, uh, those oncologists report seeing, you know, more stage three cancers. Well, and again, this is anecdotally than stage two cancers that they would have normally have found at this time. I should point out one other thing. Not, it's not just about the screening. There's been interruptions in other aspects, for example, in delays of surgery. And um, some of our uh, oncologists um, have written in the British Medical Journal uh, during the past year that for every month delay in surgery, we find a 10% increase in mortality. So these are just some of the um, the side effects that we're seeing. The statistics that t- uh, today don't tell the full story because they're historical. We're looking back and predicting to the future. So if you see, uh, you know, any of the statistics in the Ontario report, which was issued, I think, this week, um, it may not give a clear picture because what we have to do is anticipate what's going to happen in the future as a consequence of these interruptions in the screening and in uh, surgery, for example. Okay, well, let's get to it. So first of all, what are the signs and symptoms? What should people be on the lookout for, Dr. Gallinger? Well, the, the traditional symptoms that we teach medical students and every family doctor should be aware, uh, the, the usual symptoms of uh, actually a cancer, not necessarily a polyp, would be uh, a significant or a, con- a convincing, consistent change in bowel habits. So someone who was regular now becomes irregular. Someone who had regular stools now has loose stools. Occasionally, uh, blood in the stools. And uh, the screening test that Barry's talking about, the population-based stool tests, are, are designed to pick up blood in the stool and abnormal DNA that's shed by the tumors or polyps into the stool, weight loss, fatigue, any any symptom that's associated with anemia or bleeding uh, it can be a worrisome sign of, uh, of colon cancer. And of course, uh, abdominal pain. Uh, those are those are the sort of the main uh, general symptoms that people need to be aware. Uh, yeah, it sounds like, uh, you know, they're fairly... Uh, the, I wouldn't say general symptoms, but they're, you know, it's stuff that could happen for all kinds of reasons, right, Barry? Well, you're absolutely right. And some of those are not uh, always recognizable until you have something that's already underway. For example, blood in the stool is uh, very shocking. And 
one of the stories that we often hear is from people in the general population is, I don't have to get screened because I don't have any problems, I don't have any signs or symptoms of the disease. But once you are already displaying signs or symptoms, for example, blood in the stool or abdominal pain, just a couple of examples, then you you already have something that has to be, may not necessarily be colon cancer, but you definitely have a problem that has to be diagnosed. So that's how we distinguish between a diagnostic test, for example, a colonoscopy, and a screening test, uh, starting off with a fecal immunochemical test, which is a simple home-based test that an Ontario Colon Cancer Check has that you can easily uh, obtain, do at home, and get the results, um, and if positive, go on to a colonoscopy for further checking. Uh, that's a good point. Um, so uh, just before we go to a break, what are the risk factors, Dr. Gallinger? Um, it's, uh, well, I mean, we're all at risk. So uh, the general population risk, lifetime risk, about 4 or 5%. The increased risk factors are uh, primarily uh, genetic, meaning people who have strong family histories. And in some cases, there are mutations in specific uh, gene factors are known to cause an increased risk, and those people need to have uh, accelerated or heightened uh, surveillance, and that can be managed or by family doctors who understand the field or be referred to genetic centers. Uh, there are other conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, specifically uh, ulcerative colitis uh, or Crohn's disease. Those would be kind of the general, uh, more, or sorry, more specific risk factors, and then you know, there's a, there's a strong epidemiologic association with lifestyle, uh, including uh, smoking, uh, overweight, the so-called Western, you know, red meat, uh, non-Mediterranean diet. So th- those are kind of the main risk factors. But I think what Barry's saying, and I'd like to emphasize, is that we're all at risk. So uh, we can have a much greater impact uh, on the population if we recognize that people over 50 need to, need to get screened, period. Yeah, Uh, we've got to take a break. We are going to be back with more on this, but let me give the numbers out again. As I said, if you have questions about this, we have the right people to give you the answers. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're taking a break and we will be back with Dr. Stephen Gallinger and Barry Stein. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about colon cancer. And, you know, it is one of the forms of cancer that's really being affected by the pandemic because it's something that we screen for in the general population. And a lot of that screening has been put off. And the result of that, uh, you know, Doctors are just starting to see that now. The result of that is uh, cancers being discovered when it could have just been a polyp that would have cut out, been cut out, or a cancer at a later stage, which of course is harder to treat. The numbers to call 416 360 toll free 1-866-740-740. Four seven forty, and let's take a call from George in Scarborough. Hello, George. Uh, yes, hi. Good afternoon. I I, I just wanted to uh, find out how reliable is the uh, FOBT test. If I uh, spe- um, 
said that correctly, is the fecal stool at home test. Uh, the reason why I ask uh, quickly is uh, my m- mom died of uh, uh, colorectal cancer in 2008, and I've had uh, a couple of uh, colonoscopies in uh, 2008 after she died and 2014, but I was scheduled for one like in 2020, but because of the uh, pandemic, I didn't go. And so I was wondering, uh, instead of the colonoscopy, can I just do an FOBT test and how reliable is that? Okay, I will let our experts answer, Dr. Gallinger. It, it's a it's an interesting scenario. How old was your mother when she passed away? Uh, she was uh, about seventy. Mm-hmm. And and she's the only family close family member with colon cancer. That is correct. Yeah, it's, there's some controversy what to do. Uh, Barry may know better than I do. I don't follow all the guidelines to the minute. But uh, if you have a first degree rel- first degree relative, it's better to have a colonoscopy. And okay. the good news is, if you miss it for a year or two. Uh, it's not. It's not a crisis, and uh, the, the good, the polyp to cancer sequence can take many, many years. So there's a big opportunity, which is where the stool tests come in because they're not perfect. You know, they're in the 80 percent range or so. Uh, there's false negatives and false positives, which is why you need to do it regularly. Which is where sometimes we fail or the system fails because people have this misconception that if they're negative, they're fine forever. But in fact, it needs to be done regularly. So you could have one now, and if it's negative, that's good, and then you'd have one again in a couple of years, or uh, push for the colonoscopy. Uh, gastroenterologists and surgeons are way behind uh, in catching up with colonoscopies, but they are catching up, and there are procedures being done on weekends and at clinics. I know that for certain. So I, if I were you, I think I would push for the colonoscopy, you know, not in a crisis mode, but over the next six months. And certainly you could have the fecal couple of tests uh, anytime. And if it's negative, it'll give you some reassurance, but it has to be done repeatedly. Uh, Barry, before you jump in there, um, uh, you know, Steve was just talking about pushing for a colonoscopy. So what advice do you have when it comes to uh, people advocating for themselves? Because <laughs> like Steve was saying, doctors are backed up. Um, how do you self-advocate? So it's an excellent question, um, and, and I'm happy to talk about it even at length uh, because I myself was an early-age onset uh, patient at the age of just turning 41 who had metastatic colon cancer, and I had to advocate for myself. And actually, one of the first people that I reached out to was Stephen Gallinger, just coincidentally for, for a different reason that that's some 27 years ago. Um, and so, you're here uh, to tell the tale, which and, is fantastic. And I think that's, that's part of the uh, new story where, um, you know, more and more survivors of even stage four cancer um, can survive, although there's still a lot to be done. Uh, just coming back on the self-advocacy part on, in terms of the screening, it is a challenge. So let's start off with the fact that your mom was um, 70 years old when she was diagnosed. So According to the Ontario guidelines, as far as I know, that would put you actually at average risk. It's only if she was younger than 50 and had uh, colon cancer. So technically, you're at average risk. Um, the gold standard is always colonoscopy. There's no question about it because that's the only way you're going to actually see what's inside the colon and remove the polyp. But certainly very acceptable is to start off with doing the fecal immunochemical test. So they have transitioned from the fecal occult blood test to the fit or fecal immunochemical test, which is a little bit of a simpler, again, similar type of test, home-based, 
but it's um, just a little tube and you don't have to change your diet and you just, you know, touch the, the stick uh, onto the stool and send it off to the lab and they'll, they'll look again for the blood in the stool. So it's even a simpler home uh, test than the FOBT test, fecal occult blood test. So, um, so it's fairly accurate. It is, all tests are imperfect. Even colonoscopy is imperfect. It's not 100% sure. Um, but um, in your case, I would absolutely um, look for uh, the opportunity to do a colonoscopy, I think, for peace of mind, given the fact that your mother passed away from it and that you've missed your screening. So no time uh, like now to try and, and reach out to get that done. In the interim, however, I would speak to your family doctor or uh, call out to a colon cancer check um, and, you know, obtain the fit test in the interim period. Um, while still trying to get that colonoscopy. Um, I, I really appreciate that. Thank okay, you Okay, so George, thanks. I hope that helped good you out, and really good luck with this. Let, let us know how it goes, eh? Thank you. Thanks a bunch. Okay. Uh, so, uh, first of all, how do people get those tests? Would, do you have to get it from your doctor? Can you get it from a pharmacy? Is there a charge for it? So each province is different, and uh, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I'm in Quebec, where we don't have a screening program, and but as I understand it, you can go to the um, uh, Cancer Care Ontario uh, Colon Cancer Check site, and there's a phone number there and a link if you can't get it from your family physician. Um, not everybody has a family physician, so it's important to know that link at Cancer Care Ontario and the Colon Cancer Check test. Um, uh, so uh, those are the, the ways uh, that I'm familiar with being able to obtain it. It's, I haven't checked in Ontario whether it's available at pharmacies as yet. Um, so I would just rely on calling that number at the colon cancer uh, check program. Uh, Dr. Gallinger, do you know? No, I don't know more than okay. Barry. I agree. I, agree. I don't know either. I mean, okay, we'll have to look. We will have to look that up. I have to tell you, I'm I'm glad to hear that the test has actually become simpler. I know that we we are always told that it's always been a simple test, but not everybody finds it so simple or found it so simple. No, Barry's right. It is much better. Okay, um, Tony in Pefferlaw. Hello, Tony. Uh, bonjour. No. For everybody who's not had one and is afraid of it the first time, it, I've had now, I've been having mine now since I turned, I guess it was 30, 35. And, uh, a colonoscopy uh, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, colonoscopy, yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. And uh, it, 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 there's nothing to it. You can get a juice box and a cookie afterwards, right, some places. <laughs> and it's, it's a lot of fun. It, it, it's nothing. You put you under, you don't even feel nothing. You wake up and, uh, and there's a beautiful lady there having you a juice and a cookie. You can't go wrong. And, and well, that's why guys should get tested. When I hear people that, that passed away from colon cancer or whatnot, and there's a lot of people, I, I kind of say, man, that's something that could have been avoided, so. You're right yeah, about trying. that, Tony. Thanks for that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Yeah. I don't know if it's fun. <laughs> well, some people even come back, you know, for the uh, for the drugs that they give you to make you <laughs> Yeah, relax. the drugs are pretty good. <laughs> I, I can tell you I've had a few. I don't remember a thing. <laughs> The technology's improved a lot, and uh, you know the skill sets improved. So, and it's all—it's always getting better and better. So, it's—it's uh, it's a pretty safe test. Uh, unfortunately, we can't advocate it for the general population yeah. for a bunch—a bunch of reasons. But uh, if you need one, you shouldn't shy away from one. Right, and the best person to help you get one is your family doctor, if you have one, or who else? 
Well, so, the family doctor ho- hopefully has a network of uh, gastroenterologists or surgeon, general surgeons who do them. And uh, yeah, I would, you know, if you don't have a family doctor, it's a little bit more difficult. But uh, as Barry said, and he's one of the best examples of advocacy, if you, if you push, you can, you can usually get things done. Yeah, that's uh, that's just the way. Um, so, we do have uh, information on our website at colorectalcancercanada.com dot um, of the different uh, tests, first of all, but also of the different sites where you can obtain, um, you know, uh, in in every province, including Ontario, um, the uh, fecal immunochemical test. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about. I think there's also been improvements in treatment. Am I right? Sure. Yeah, lots, lots of new improvements. Like what? Well, I, I mean, surgery, I'm a surgeon, so I, I can certainly state that surgery is getting better and better. It's a very iterative process. You know, we get better uh, as time goes by with new technology. One of the most significant advances is minimally invasive surgery. So the way we've been doing gallbladder surgery since early 90s is now considered standard of care to do colon cancer surgery. Wow. So and the, is it uh, for all of it or just uh, at certain stages? Um, many. Uh, it depends, again, on the location of the tumor and where you are, you know, what part of the country you're in and where the uh, experts expertise is. But in general, uh, many tumors, many colon cancers, surgeries are now being done uh, with minimally invasive techniques. So that's number one. Um, and, of course, advances in uh, therapies either what's called adjuvant therapy, it means uh, treatment after surgery or before surgery with chemotherapy, which improves the chance for a cure. And then even for more advanced disease, meaning people who have stage you know, four cancer where there has been spread, as Barry mentioned, we're doing much more liver surgery uh, for uh, tumors in the liver than we used to do with good, good outcomes. There's even a, um, an investigational approach with liver transplantation for very, very rare uh, cases, but again, something new that uh, is now being done in Canada as well. And then probably the most significant advance in the past five or six years is immunotherapy, which uh, is very effective for a subset, not all cases, but for a subset of colon cancer. That's been a, a really big splash and significant advance with much better outcomes than using uh, chemotherapy alone. Okay, I want to take a call from Grace, who wants to share her experience, but we have very little time left. Grace, uh, thanks. Can you can you tell us your story in maybe uh, twenty or thirty seconds? Um, just I had a colonoscopy done, and I dodged that bullet. I I didn't have any symptoms, and that was just an annual thing that my doctor thought I, I should get it checked out uh, because I have a family history, and then I had uh, um, and I had polyps, and yeah. I had a lot of them, and. So I dodged that bullet, and I was grateful. And also the breast uh, cancer, the breast screening, the mammogram. I had that done, and I dodged that bullet as well. I had a, I had something there. It wasn't, it wasn't anything difficult, but still, why are people afraid to go get tested? It's something that has to be done, and if it's not one thing, it's another. So I think we should trust the clinics and the doctors to do their preliminary work so that we don't add to the problem. And Grace, it was your doctor that arranged the colonoscopy. Was it on time or was it delayed? Nothing was delayed in both cases. Wow. Everything was on time, like clockwork. 
Okay. Lucky woman. Uh, great Very GP nice. you've got there. Thanks for your call. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, we, I, I'm going to give each of you 30 seconds to wrap things up, starting with Barry Stein. Thanks again. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, Steve is really very knowledgeable in genetic testing. And a lot of what's been happening in recent years is younger people under the age of 50 are being diagnosed with colon cancer. So it's a real shout out to our family practitioners who may be hearing this, not to ignore the signs and symptoms. When a young patient comes in, in the United States, they've reduced the screening age five years to 45. I was 40 when I was diagnosed. So to look out, even if you're young, for, first of all, healthy lifestyles, diet and exercise to prevent the disease, and don't ignore the signs and symptoms, and speak to your family physician. And as uh, as we just mentioned, um, from a genetic point of view, know your family history. If there is a history of the disease or something, for example, like Lynch syndrome, Barry. these are the types of things you have to know about. Okay, Stephen Gallinger, now it's down to 20 seconds. Yeah, no, I get it. And I think, you know, Barry, I think has uh, summarized it well. Your last caller was a, is a good demonstration of success stories and screening. So, uh, you know, we've done well, I think, in Canada and public health care system in, in promoting and supporting screening. The young patients with colon cancer is a bit of an epidemic, not for a discussion today, but Libby, but you might want to discuss it in the future because it's something that's new and interesting in the field. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. And, uh, you know, I think everybody should be get screened uh, for average population. We can make a significant impact on this nasty disease. Absolutely. And thank you so very much, Dr. Stephen Gallinger and Barry Stein. Uh, really useful information, and we appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks so much. Okay, that is all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. So if you didn't get through or there's something else you want to talk about, please call back. I'll be off for a couple of days. See you next Tuesday. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. <clears throat> Excuse me. A staggering amount of money in provincial pandemic relief went to businesses that were not eligible for it. We've been hearing about that since yesterday. It's nearly a billion dollars. And in her comprehensive report, Auditor General Bonnie Lissick found $210 million was spent on grants to small businesses that weren't eligible and $714 million was paid to cover losses that businesses didn't actually incur. Uh, it's the kind of thing that would have made Premier Doug Ford furious before he was in government. Now he's explaining that these errors occurred in the rush to get help to those who truly needed it. Now, we will get into all aspects of this, but first I am joined by Ontario Auditor General Bonnie Lissick. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me, Libby. Okay, well, I'm just looking at the percentage here. So it's nearly a billion out of a total of 11.2 billion uh, that was allocated for business pandemic relief. So I'm just wondering that that's around 10 percent. Is is that a normal percentage of of money that goes awry? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a couple things here. Maybe just to just to clarify, the this program was the Ontario Small Business Support Grant Program. The approved amount for that program was actually the three point four billion 
uh, total payments that went out on that program were about $2.9 billion. In about $2.9 billion, about $210 million uh, went to ineligible recipients, and that amount was written off in the government's financial statement. So that money has been written off. The other amount that we have in our report relates to program design. So people that were eligible to receive money would have been people that, um, so they would have received either $10,000 and then a second tranche of another 10000 So in a, I'm going to refer you back to a figure in our report, figure 13 in our report, where it indicates what, pers- what people said their losses were, because all they were doing is comparing one month to another month a year later. And if you showed a loss for that particular month, you became eligible even if your loss was only like a dollar. You would still get the $10,000. So we looked at that, and uh, and that's how we came up with the amount of money. And, and it's program design in the sense that the, the uh, it was $10,000 minimum that was provided to people versus the amount that, that um, was being shown by this calculation that they would have been entitled to. There was confusion around the program. So we have that written up in the report. So so I, I guess I'd say that at the end of the day, if they had had more time to put in place the controls and a, and a better design, then the money would have reached um, those um, who could provide support that they needed that money. Uh, but again, uh, the the question is, is, is that a, a reasonable, we know that when it comes to government programs or whatever, there is, you know, a, a reasonable amount of money that might go astray a little bit. Is is this kind of much higher than that? Yeah, this this is higher. I mean, this is higher. I think I think the problem was, it was identified as a need. So you know there was a, uh, there was you know the good intent was to put money out to people that needed it. The difficulty with that is that you know when you have make these decisions, then it's the administration that needs to implement the computer systems that you know take in the applications and then uh, you know distribute the money to those who are eligible. They, when the design of that computer system was done, the controls weren't all there to detect the fact that money was being paid to ineligible recipients. So an example would be somebody that wasn't even in the country would oh. have um, didn't have to have a residency in Ontario to get the money. Wow. Um, was there anything else in the report that particularly surprised you? I mean, you were talking about uh, uh, delays for outpatient surgery. You know, given what was going on in the healthcare system, uh, I would think that that would not be surprising. Uh, yeah, we did find there were delays. I mean, there were delays before COVID and then COVID, you know, um, exacerbated that a little bit more. I think what we see there is that when we look to other provinces, um, like British Columbia or Alberta, they actually identify wait times by physician or surgeon. And it allows people then perhaps to pick surgeons that might not have the same amount of wait time as another surgeon. So one of our recommendations was to uh, for the province to develop a database that would identify wait times by surgeons so that um, people can pick um, surgeons that, you know, might be able to do their surgery faster. Yeah, there, there's also a lot of talk about a central list where you go to the surgeon that, has, uh, that, that can accommodate you as opposed to uh, the person that you think you want to go to. 
who has a year-long waiting list. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have the choice. You could wait or or perhaps, you know, pick somebody if, you're, if your situation is getting worse, um, you might want to have it dealt with faster. And, you know, there's still... These are still good physicians, right? Uh, but there, there was something very concerning there, and um, I think that it, it, you know, one example of where it happens is is with cataract surgery, where right. uh, there was an issue that you know you can get the uh, standard cataract surgery that is paid for, or you can upgrade it. And I guess there was a concern that patients were being upsold and they were not being informed that they could get the plain vanilla surgery that is completely covered. Yeah, we um, did identify uh, that the ministry doesn't have an oversight mechanism to protect patients from being charged inappropriately for publicly funded surgeries. So um, sometimes we found that people were misinformed of their right to receive the standard cataract surgery that's free of charge. And that um, there are some uh, lenses that, you know, are being offered for sale at 450 per eye, and it could be as high as $5,000 per eye, depending on the ophthalmologist and depending on the, the lens. And, um, you know, anecdotally, I've heard from people that they feel pressured or they feel like they won't be able to see if they get the government lenses. Uh, do you have a remedy for that? You know, um, when we're clearing our reports, we do discuss them with the ministry. We do discuss them with the the ministers are briefed as well. Um, You know, my understanding is that this is an area that is being looked at to see whether or not the quality of the lens would be changing going forward. And another area that is very controversial are these uh, MZOs, ministerial zoning orders, and they are being used quite a lot to speed up approval for developments. The uh, opposition says that it's the Ford government uh, just uh, delivering payback to their uh, supporters who are developers. Uh, And uh, you compare in your report uh, the numbers, a very large number of them compared to some years when this was used, uh, you know, maybe once or or not at all. What do you make of that and what's uh, your recommendation? Yeah, um, MZOs, um, you know, there have been the odd MZO issued in the past, but legislation has been changed to allow for the issuance of what we would call more enhanced MZOs and the more frequent use of the MZOs. MZOs are overrides of the normal planning process in Ontario. So what we've um, we've recommended, and the report's a good one to read that that report on land planning, so that people can understand how that works in Ontario. Um, but what we've recommended is that if this becomes a practice that it seems to be one that will continue, now it's time to put in place some transparency around it. You know, what are the criteria for when an MZO is issued, um, so that developers plus municipalities plus other stakeholders have 100% um, understanding of why decisions are being made and why it's, it's you know, uh, why a minister is, is signing off and issuing an MZO. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Um, you know, I, I think the one chapter that I think is a good one to read is the cardiac and stroke uh, report chapter, because it does say there that, you know, if you're having a stroke or you're having a heart attack, know where your stroke centers are and your cardiac centers are in Ontario. There's 21 and 28 of the other, and uh, and it's good to call an ambulance because they'll take you to the right center. Sometimes we see in our audit that people are going to the wrong hospitals, and then they have to be transferred to get the uh, 
the more specific treatment they need. So I would say that's a, a good one for Ontarians to be aware of. Okay, well, uh, that sounds like a very important information. Bonnie mm-hmm. Lissick, Ontario Auditor General, thank you very much for being with okay. us. Well, thank you for having me, Libby. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, as we've been reporting, nearly a billion dollars in taxpayers' money went to businesses not entitled to it. And um, as Bonnie Lissick just told us, uh, some of that money has been written off, which means there's no plans to try to recoup it. Uh, so uh, what do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for joining us. A great Thank pleasure. You. Thanks for having us, Libby. Okay. Well, Rocco, let's begin with you. What's your reaction to that? That's uh, a lot of money to businesses who are not eligible for it. The premier's saying, well, you know, they, if they were going to cheat, they did. Uh, and um, no plans to uh, recruit it, to recoup it, excuse me. Well, uh, two things, Libby. First first off, the, the real tragedy in all this is that many businesses who did need it and who failed because they didn't receive it uh, have gone under. Uh, and and uh, not going after it, I think, is a mistake for so many reasons. It's uh, it's important. Um, uh, it's important to to recover every dollar as long as you can do it effectively and efficiently. The the overall amounts, though, I do want to be clear, and I do uh, have some sympathy for government because, quite frankly. When you're falling from a plane, you don't ask the price of the of the parachute. And there was no doubt that um, they were getting pressure, and we were among those pressuring them to get the programs out quickly. That speed mattered. Uh, where it becomes more concerning is kind of a year and then twenty months into the program, seeing some of these same things um, continuing. And that's what's really important about the AGs report is to make sure that, you know, we're tightening things up. We understand in the initial uh, weeks and uh, and months, you can say, look, everything had to be rushed and, and uh, we're trying to save the patient here. Uh, but uh, as time goes on, you have to tighten those things up and you have to get that money so it can be directed to where it's needed or to not spend it if it's not needed. Uh, well, yeah, let's bring in Franco Terrazano. And that's one of the criticisms uh, of all of this is that, hey, that that wasn't that didn't take place, you know, in, in March of 2020. It happened months into it. Yeah, we've been dealing with this pandemic now for more than a year and a half. Right. And, and you understand when the government's trying to move fast, some mistakes may happen. But we've had so long uh for these mistakes to be corrected. And we also have to remember that loopholes can't be so big they can drive a truck through them. Uh, this is an eye-watering report with eye-watering numbers where we see nearly a billion dollars of taxpayers' money going to either businesses that were ineligible or businesses that received more tax dollars than the revenue they lost. And now we're hearing that the Ford government has no intention to try to recover these funds. Well, that's unacceptable, and taxpayers have every right to make sure that this money 
is recovered because it really comes down to an issue of fairness. It's not fair for taxpayers, for families to see their tax bill go up because some businesses, some businesses, not all, of course, some businesses received money that they shouldn't have. And also, it's not fair for those businesses' competitors, right? Other businesses who have played by the rules um, to face a higher tax bill because some other businesses received money that they were ineligible for. So we, we, we expect the Ford government, especially with its massive debt bill, to make sure that it can recover at least some of these funds. What do you think is behind uh, the failure to do that? I mean, part of it's already been written off. It's gone. And uh, the audit, if I understood the Auditor General correctly, uh, part of the problem with the rest of the money was the design of the program. Well, I think that a lot of it has to do with a lack of political will. And really, that's been the huge issue facing Ontario's finances, not just during the pandemic, but for more than a decade and a half. Right, We have seen revenue in the province of Ontario grow by about 5.4% over the years, each year, but spending has surged. And if the government over the last decade and a half increased spending to the rates of inflation and population growth, um, the Ontario government would have spent about $400 billion less during that time. Now, that's essentially the entire debt of the province. So I think the problem that we're seeing now, what we're hearing from the Ford government, this lack of political will, is really the problem that has plagued Ontario's finances for a long time. Uh, Rocco Rossi, what do you think is behind this? I mean, you know, it, it. I find it a bit ironic because this is exactly the kind of thing that would have infuriated Doug Ford before he was premier. So why do you think they're not going after this cash? Uh, look, where where programs are um, designed, again, uh, done quickly, and so in the early design, you you didn't cross all the T's and dot the I's. Uh, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm I'm not uh, looking at the at the contracts directly. There may well be legal advice that says for some of it, in any case. Uh, the rules or the regulations were written in such a way that recovery um, will will not happen. That said, um, Franco's points are, are are very just with respect to the issue of fairness and the importance. It's not simply look at again extraordinary amounts of money were spent over the time of the crisis because it was necessary. The tragedy of waste is when you spend it in areas where it's not necessary, those who needed it and who it was intended for don't all get it. And that is beyond an issue of fairness. It's also an issue of ensuring you build the foundation for the economic recovery, which is necessary to us paying down these debts. Um, Franco, you know, one of the things that I've heard is, you know, compare and contrast. There are people who ha- uh, had overpayments of CERB and the government's going after them for it. That's a different government, of course. Well, look, any any person who received more than they should have or received money when they're ineligible, we expect government uh, to recoup those monies because, because that money isn't government's money per se, that money is going to have to come from taxpayers one way or another. And I think there's a lot of issues 
here, not just from the Ford government, but of course the federal government. You've talked about the, the CERB, and that's, that's a valid point. But also, let's look at the wage subsidy from the federal government, where you find that wage subsidy amounts were spent um, to some companies that then turned around and paid out bonuses or dividends to their executives. Well, businesses have every right to pay out uh, bonuses to their C-suites, just not with taxpayers' money. Um, but there's also an issue of leadership here that we see at the highest level of government. And of course, I'm talking about federal political parties who dipped into the wage subsidy that was meant to go for struggling businesses. And these political parties should have never taken the wage subsidy in the first place, uh, especially those federal parties like the Liberal Conservatives, the NDPs, and the Greens. All of them. Um, because All of them took receiving. it? All of them except for the Bloc. The Bloc was the only party in the House of Commons that did not help themselves to the wage subsidy that was meant for struggling businesses. Wow. And of course, there were businesses that took the wage subsidy, pocketed the cash, and then fired the people that the wage subsidy was supposed to keep employed. Well, there has been there has been some big companies. Like, like I said, right, uh, you can expect for some things to go wrong when a government is trying to get things out the door quick in the first few months. But we've been dealing with this for more than a year and a half now, and you can't have these loopholes so big that you can drive a truck through them. Um, now, one thing that is, is a huge issue is that we heard that these businesses, some businesses took the wage subsidy and then turned around and increased the compensation of their executives in some right. manner. And that should have never happened. And they should pay back that amount in the wage subsidy as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there any uh, uh, indication to you that, uh, there, that the federal government might try to recoup any of this? Well, the federal government, if I believe correctly, said any payments going forward would have rules around them. Of course, uh, they have just transitioned away from these broader subsidies to more targeted subsidies. That's a good first step. Of course, that's still going to cost us billions of dollars over the next few months. Um, but what we're really pushing hard for is to see some leadership at the top and to get those political parties to pay the money back. Now, the Conservatives, under Aaron O'Toole, he immediately said upon his election as party leader that he would make his Conservative Party pay the money back. Now, have they paid that money back? That's a whole other question. We don't know just yet, but we're pushing but these let's, parties let's be to clear. pay it back. Let's be, let's be clear because it's not a zero-sum game in the sense that the, the wage subsidy... Can, would only uh, apply if then the people for the for the time that the subsidy is available aren't then being pushed onto the EI rolls, um, and and so that 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 has to be traded off. And um, you know it's it it would be easy to target the political uh, parties for doing this, but if they. Um, as in effect, not-for-profit organizations, and there were charities and not-for-profits that also were able to um, uh, to use the uh, wage subsidy program because the the logic behind it is if you're going to lay people off and then simply push them onto uh, onto EI. That is not going to be as effective and efficient for the economy going forward as keeping them within uh, the payrolls of an existing uh, employer uh, so that recovery comes faster. And in effect, the trade-off on, on dollars was not, uh, not so huge relative to the efficiency of being able to continue to do it through 
workforce payroll as opposed to going through uh, the EI process. But if they'd been unemployed, that's what would have happened, and it would have still been a draw on the taxpayer. That's true. Now, uh, people, we still have a little bit of time left in this segment. We're talking about the Auditor General's report. Uh, specifically, we're talking about nearly a billion dollars in pandemic support went to businesses that were not eligible for it. And some of that money's already been written off. And uh, the other part, well, it doesn't look like the government is going after that. So what do you think of that? 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. And uh, do you find it unusual that this is coming from the Ford government, a government, of course, that uh, would have been the first to complain to scream about this happening. So again, the number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Uh, let's go to Wendy in Guelph. Hi, Wendy. Hi there. Good morning. Good afternoon. Go ahead. Good afternoon, either or. I just had a comment. I <clears throat> mistakenly, I mean, I live on a disability and I had started a small business, which did not qualify. And I found that out two payments in, so I stopped, and so that $4,000, and my income is only 25000 a year, and um, they're making me pay that $4,000 back, even though I mistakenly didn't qualify, and I live on, well, reduced food and prayers of getting through, so I don't know why these other big high rollers don't have to pay back any of the money that they knowingly got, because after a couple of months, you know you're not entitled. So you either stop taking it or you continue taking it. And so I don't know where to go with any of that, but that's my comment. Okay, well, I'm going to ask our guests uh, if they have anything to say about that. Rocco? Uh, Again, the issue of uh, the issue of fairness, uh, it has to be applied equally everywhere. She's absolutely uh, right um, on that. And uh, and every effort should be made to uh, recover funds that didn't go to the right um, that didn't go to the right place because there are many uh, that have needed it and didn't get it. Hmm. And Franco, uh, what do you say to Wendy? You know, I, I agree. I agree with what uh, Rocco said there. And what's so unfortunate about the situation is that heading into this pandemic, the government was already up to its eyeballs in debt. Now it's $400 billion in debt, the provincial government alone, the, the most indebted subnational jurisdiction. Um, and so how are we going to pay back all this money? Well, if this government doesn't tighten its belt, doesn't put in better restraint on its spending, uh, tax bills are going to have to go up. And that's unfair for the so many people who are struggling and are playing by the rules. Hmm. Um, is there anything else in this Auditor General's report that uh, really has you going, Franco? Well, for us, we're, we've really focused on the uh, just the eye-watering amount of money, that nearly $1 billion. One other thing that, that we did see was just that uh, certain the price in certain um, Ontario hospitals for the same types of devices can, can vary a significant amount. And, and so that's why, just given the context of the massive spending uh, by the Ontario government, we would suggest that this government look at why some of these devices are, are more expensive uh, in, specifically? in certain places. Yep, and how we can find some savings. Specifically, which devices are you referring to? Car- cardiac devices. Oh, I see, right. Okay, there was but also... Libby, yes, go I ahead. I think that there's a ton 
I think there's a ton in there that that it was really important for the AG to shine a light uh, on it and that we need to focus more time on because the the potential costs, both in terms of, of money and health, et cetera, are huge. The backlog, for instance, on on uh, surgeries and other um, treatments that um, were effectively put off because of the uh, the pandemic, we're talking potentially years of backlog, uh, and to speed that up, uh, the capacity issues, the costs around that, not to mention what's happening to people's health in the meantime. You put off tests of things like cardiac issues or cancer issues, and then problems get discovered later than what early uh, detection would do. And as, as, as you well know, and you've been a tremendous champion of this, early detection on so many areas in cancer and cardiovascular is really at the core of what has been saving lives. Yes, we treat better. Yes, we've got those things. But if you don't catch it early, the chances are, are, are so diminished. And so focusing on, on that area, focusing on the land planning uh, issues with, you know, the MCOs that you also talked about uh, with the AG. There's a whole bunch around how we can and should be improving what we're doing uh, on the cannabis file to make sure that we really are bringing an end to the illegal side of that business and not tying uh, the hands of, of now the legal side uh, so that it can't effectively compete with the illegal, which was really one of the biggest reasons for doing this in the first place. And, and you know, Rocco, you've uh, given us a perfect intro to our next segment, which is about colon cancer. And a lot of colon cancer screening has been put off because of the pandemic. So uh, we have a very important segment coming up right after uh, you. And uh, we're out of time on this one. So thank you so much, Rocco Rossi and Franco Terrazano. Really appreciate your time. All the very best. Thank you. Okay. Uh, We're going to take a break. And when we come back, as I said, we have a special segment on colon cancer. It's one of those areas where, uh, you know, we're all supposed to screen for it one way or another after the age of 50. And a lot of that has gone by the wayside. So we will be talking about it when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.